Welcome to episode three of the Climate Money Podcast with me, Susan Sue. I'm a climate investor and a climate mom, struggling to keep up with the headlines, yet always wanting to learn more. So I invite you to follow the climate headlines and the climate money with me. Last week, we talked about Kenya's carbon cash cow, the specter of Solyndra 2.0 haunting our climate critical loan programs office, an interesting move by UK lawmakers blocking JBS, the world's largest meat processor, from listing on the NYSE, and France and Italy's cultured meat ban on the grounds of tradition, and why regulatory capture is everyone's problem. If you missed that episode, you can always go back and give it a listen. But in the meantime, let's jump in to episode three, where we talk climate disasters and, in happier news, welcome our first ever special guest. All right, our first story, climate disasters cost $200 billion in 2023, but we're still blaming it on the weather. Now, Munich RE, one of the world's largest reinsurers, recently published data on the costs associated with 2023's natural disasters. Of the total $250 billion of losses that Munich estimates were incurred last year, $200 billion came from non-geophysical, that is non-earthquake, natural disasters. And of that $200 billion that was non-geophysical, less than half was insured. Yikes. Most of the losses actually happened in North America, and more specifically in the U.S. In fact, in separate news out of the National Centers for Environmental Information, new data is showing that the U.S. saw a record number of uh, 28 weather and climate disasters throughout 2023, each causing a billion dollars or more in damage for a total of 93 billion, according to these researchers, and counting as a lot of those losses are still being tallied, and also collectively killing at least 492 people. This is up from the previous record of 22 mega disasters, which was logged fairly recently in 2020. All this means that even as the insurance companies took a big hit of around 90 billion, as we said, the world at large took an even bigger hit with uninsured losses reaching as high as $110 billion. While staggering, let's be clear that these loss numbers don't even begin to reflect the true scale of loss that the global biosphere and its inhabitants, including us humans, have borne. For example, in Canada, wildfires destroyed 18.5 million hectares of forest, or an area about half the size of the state of California. Most of this was in wilderness areas, not near critical infrastructure, so the dollar losses we can assign to it are low. But what is the loss to biodiversity or to carbon sequestration? We can't know exactly, but we know it's not zero. Now, over the past 10 years, in addition to devastating wildfires, we've unfortunately heard a lot about 100-year hurricanes suddenly, suddenly coming through and wreaking havoc every year, and we've experienced multiple damaging polar vortexes and 100-year floods as well. But what's different about 2023's climate-related disasters and losses is that they were mostly caused by a large number of severe regional storms, thunderstorms specifically, that haven't previously been seen in the U.S. or Europe. 
with the exception of the devastating fires on Maui, it was actually thunderstorms and hailstorms that were the most destructive, with about $76 billion in losses in the U.S. from thunderstorms alone and an additional $10 billion in thunderstorm-related losses in Europe. Now, why are thunderstorms getting worse with climate change? This gets to our narrative challenge and why this story matters. Ernst Rauch, chief climate scientist at Munich Re, has a helpful explanation about the thunderstorms. He says, more water evaporates at higher temperatures and additional moisture in the atmosphere provides energy for severe storms. Their report goes on to say that at least 76% of overall losses were what they called weather-related, while 24% had geophysical causes. There were massive earthquakes in southeastern Turkey and in Syria, and that was the bulk of the geophysical-related losses. Now, even though Munich's report notes that average global temperatures in 2023 until November were roughly 1.3 degrees Celsius above those in pre-industrial times, and that 2023 was the hottest year since temperature measurements began in the mid-1800s, and their report cites the words climate change directly and repeatedly as a causal factor for the disasters that they've counted, many of the mainstream media stories covering this report don't use the words climate change at all. Instead, they talk about weather, they talk a lot about storms and thunderstorms, but don't make the connection to climate change. Now, Munich Re is sounding the alarm on resilience and adaptation to climate change, not just to weather. And this makes sense. An insurance business lives and dies by its loss ratios, meaning how much did they lose versus how much did they insure? And they don't benefit from sugarcoating the problem or hiding it behind comfortable language. Munich Re, which is a reinsurer, meaning they're basically an insurance company for insurance companies, cannot keep serving as a global backstop for its customers, the insurance companies, as losses start outpacing premiums. So I think this is their global reinsurer way of saying, hey, everyone, we need to do something about climate change yesterday. All of this gets to something that I think is a critical question for us to be asking. Why can we only talk about climate change in terms of the future or something we must prevent from happening? We just saw the hottest, most expensive climate change year on record in which even Maui burned to the ground. Why are we still unable to talk about climate change as the present occurrence that it is? If you're like me, then you may at times have found yourself thinking, okay, once things get really bad, whatever that means, the world will be forced to pay attention and change. We couldn't possibly let our own ship sink when we're the ones cracking the hull open. But here we are. If $200 billion and mostly centralized in North America, in the U.S. of all places with power, wasn't enough, then what will be? What would change if we started to acknowledge that climate change is here now, today, but also still preventable, that we need both mitigation but also adaptation. Tenses matter because they drive behavior. Okay, our second and in this particular week final story is on a very different note. Let's talk about the elephant in the room. Let's talk about Tesla and Hertz. 
The news loves Tesla, whether it's good or bad news. So a good amount has been published about this development, but most of it has been missing the early stage climate technology perspective, which we'll get into a bit here. For this story, I've invited my good friend and fellow investor, Olaf Sackers of Red Blue, which focuses on mobility and has a super competence in EVs to come and chat with us about what's going on. Olaf, hello, first of all, and um, welcome. And can you give us a quick intro to the fund? So Red Blue Capital is a investor that specializes in mobility or transportation investing. That means things that move people or goods. And we have a strong focus on electric vehicles, on the electric vehicle transition, and we invest globally. So we don't just invest in the United States or in Europe. We also look at emerging markets like India and Africa and Latin America. Okay, awesome. Well, I will jump in and give a quick summary of the Hertz Tesla situation, and then you and I can dive in with a little bit of analysis. So Hertz is selling 20,000 vehicles from its EV fleet, most of which are Tesla Model 3s, as maintenance costs um, accelerate faster than expected and depreciation makes these cars uneconomical for Hertz to retain. Uh, In my view, and Olaf, I'd be curious to get your perspective on this, I think there are three things going on here, two of which are Tesla specific and one that's a bigger EV problem that's highly relevant to the broader energy and mobility transition. So the first thing is that Tesla, as we know, has been cutting prices on their cars pretty dramatically, which forces Hertz to accept lower resale prices since new car prices basically dictate resale ranges. And then Hertz has to do major write downs of those assets since they're an asset holder. This highlights the tension between growth or distribution of more Teslas on the road and asset value that's oftentimes dependent on scarcity. Tesla wants more of its cars in people's hands, so it drops prices, but Tesla owners, including and especially fleet owners like Hertz, want their assets to retain as much value as possible. I don't know if you remember, Olaf, back in 2021, where there was so much demand and such a long wait list for Teslas that you could sell a used one for more than the price of a new one. Kind of crazy. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And and also when Hertz was acquiring these vehicles, it was really difficult to get supply. And... Elon kind of famously forced them to pay market prices. Most uh, car rental companies get by at steeply discounted prices because they're buying at volume. Uh, but that was not the case with the Hertz purchase. Yeah, so now that Tesla is going for mass market and has changed its mind about where its market price should be pegged, and like I'd love to hear your perspective on this, but to me, the Model 3 brand has become the new Prius. Like they're very common and we also see them in in a lot of Ubers and things like that. And funnily, I actually am old enough to remember when the Prius itself was the status symbol that celebrities would be seen driving to the Beverly Hills Whole Foods parking lot and it made the celebrity news. And now the Prius is the Prius. I think the Model 3 is kind of gone in that, starting to go in that direction a little bit. But it really changes the brand equity and real equity equation that other stakeholders have already banked on. So for Hertz, who are now redoing their ROI, their return on investment calculation, they're starting to come back with a number in the red. Olaf, can you tell us a little bit more about that and how depreciation falls into all of this? Yeah, so I think if Fisker or Rivian or Lucid could have a vehicle as popular as the Prius, uh, I think that will be happy too. But one of the challenges Hertz is facing with Model 3s and, and other EVs in its fleet are that 
there are a few problems all colliding. The one you mentioned is the residual value. So discounting has forced down the price, but there, there are a few other things that are also compounding. The one is it seems like um, drivers of EVs have accidents at higher rates than internal combustion engine vehicles. And, and basically what, what Hertz has done is it's exposed a lot of drivers that haven't used EVs before to EVs for the first time. Um, and they respond a bit differently uh, to internal combustion vehicles. They accelerate more sharply. Um, and this has caused accidents at higher rates, which is, which is another challenge. In addition to that, when vehicles like the Model 3 get into accidents, they're actually much harder to repair. And this has got something to do with Tesla's manufacturing process and vertical integration. So they're using this machine called the GigaPress, which comes from an Italian company called Indra. And it, it allows a process called single die casting, which basically means that a lot of things that would be bolted on in the standard production line are basically pressed into a single mold. So fewer steps in the production process are required. A massive competitive advantage that Tesla has right now is it can manufacture cheaper uh, than other car makers, which is part of what's allowed it to do this wave of discounting in order to capture more market share. But the upshot of this, the, the downside for Hertz is that the single die costing process makes it more difficult to repair vehicles because you basically have um, less swappable components and one kind of complete hole. So the combination of these factors, the, the single die costing, the residual value, and the accident rates are all compounding for Hertz in a headwind that's, that's quite challenging and wasn't necessarily expected when they made this large acquisition of, of Teslas. And in addition, I think there's also uh, less uh, customer excitement about EVs and renting EVs than initially expected. I, I do want to like say, though, that I think Hertz has been a pioneer on this front and has probably benefited a lot from moving fast on, on EVs than its competitors. And I think it's very easy in retrospect to be like, oh, they should have known that this was silly. But I think this is a challenge with, with going first. I'm sure a lot of these lessons uh, will be incorporated going forward. Um, and they might well still be uh, quite well positioned uh, to leverage EVs uh, to their advantage in the future. I think what's interesting about a couple of the points that you made, Olaf, is that the interests of the manufacturer are somewhat diametrically opposed or at least at odds with the interests of the asset holder of the Hertz in uh, the fleet operator in this case both from what we talked about earlier between distribution and kind of asset scarcity and price appreciation, all the way to like, hey, it's easier to manufacture these parts. And whoop do you we get to save a bunch of money on manufacturing, but now we're passing those costs on to the asset holder who then has to deal with repairs and doesn't have the parts, nor the service technicians. There's, from what I understand, a meaningful bottleneck on the service technician side, which, you know, typically would mean that the services themselves are going to be more expensive if there are fewer people available or able to perform them. And so that's something that I think for manufacturer for OEMs that want to get their cars into the hands of a lot of people, they're going to have to think more about how to align their interests with those ultimate asset holders. But in particular, very specific to Tesla and some of the choices that choices that they've made around the way their technology comes into being. I do want to talk about a third piece of this that I think is relevant across all EVs. So we were mentioning the higher accident rates and how there's this learning curve for users. I don't know who all listening here has ever driven an EV, but it can go from, you know, zero to 60 or even 80 in just a few seconds. 
it sort of jumps right when you touch the acceleration pedal. And a lot of people aren't quite used to that, especially who have been driving ICE vehicles for their entire lives. So there's a user inexperience, user error factor here. But why this matters a lot beyond Tesla is that for many EVs, there's actually currently no way to repair or assess even slightly damaged battery packs after these kinds of small fender benders all the way up to moderate accidents. And that forces insurance companies to write off cars with even just a few miles on them if something has happened to the car. This wouldn't necessarily be the case um, in, you know, an ICE vehicle where there's a lot more ability to kind of peek under the hood, so to speak, and, and also a lot more decades of experience with how to repair and assess the quality of a vehicle after an accident. And I think this not only leads to higher premiums for EVs, which is part of the total cost of ownership or operating, and that's problematic for both consumers and for a rental provider, but that's also just a huge problem for the industry at large. Now, we know that EVs aren't exactly sustainable when it comes to the raw materials that go into their batteries. And at the same time, the batteries are just expensive. It's the single most expensive component in the entire vehicle. So if we're tossing out a car simply because we can't tell what condition the battery is in, that strikes me as a whole lot of waste and loss that now has to get baked into the upfront cost somehow. I think this is an underrecognized factor that's going to keep EVs expensive for a long time till we solve it, which means a lot more ICE cars are going to be hitting the roads with their baked in lifetime cost of, you know, call it eight to 10 years worth of emissions which is really bad news. And, you know, Olaf, you mentioned EV sales dropping across the U.S. Now, in a separate but related story, you and I were chatting about Ford announcing that they cut 1,400 jobs associated with the F-150 Lightning, while at the same time adding 900 jobs for their Bronco and Ranger facility that they're manufacturing SUVs and pickups out of. So things are definitely kind of trending in the wrong direction. But I'm curious, Olaf, what you're kind of seeing on the early stage technology side to either address some of the battery insights issues and and then also just more broadly in the global market, you know, how China figures into all of this. Yeah, so I'd, I'd say like maybe the transition's a little bit like the transition from feature phones to iPhones. You could say that iPhones suck because they're hard to repair. And they've got kind of range issues like, you know, Nokia, you know, 4680 or whatever those numbers were back in the day could last a week. And, and the internal combustion engine has, has more range. And, you know, like when you crack your iPhone, it's just like a horrific experience. It becomes harder and harder to repair and you only do it in an Apple shop and you pay extra. Uh, but I don't think that many people look back at this and go like, if only we still had like Ericsson and Nokia phones. I know some people think this about Blackberries, but not about, about the rest. So, and, and I think... Though the trend is negative, or the sentiment right now is negative, I don't think it's that EV sales have like taken a U-turn. It's just that the momentum that we felt that was 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 here, and that you know we're in the the upward part of an S curve is a little bit flatter than we expected. So I don't think it's that everything is is going negative. I think a lot of the problems, but specifically, is facing facing is because electric vehicles have become cheaper cheaper than when they originally bought it when supply was constrained and now supply is more abundant so i do think a lot of these things are not necessarily trending in such a bad direction i think there are pickups and potholes as one might say along this transition it's not simple 
in every case, but I do think you're going to have a continuous uptake and, and growth in the market, infrastructure build out. I think the most important thing to note about the industry is that I don't know of any car makers that are, are spending significant R&D, which they spend billions a year on each, on anything other than uh, electric vehicles. So it's pretty clear that the future is electric and that we're moving there quite quickly. Whether we'll do it, you know, a massive transition in, uh, like Norway has or like China is doing uh, or slower than that, um, you know, I think it's, it's complicated. Um, but I think it's pretty clear with the trend line and the directionality of this is all going. I think China is interesting in, in the sense because what's happened in the Chinese market is a rapid transition towards electric vehicles. A lot of support from the government, you know, subsidies in order to set up a whole wave of, of Tesla lookalikes, basically. So Tesla came into the Chinese market first, started also discounting its vehicles, but, but making you know, EVs cool and somewhat ubiquitous. And there was a whole wave of new EV manufacturers that got set up, like Li Auto and Neo, and, and then also BYD, which has been around for quite some time, uh, started producing you know, very attractive electric vehicles at very affordable prices. So what's happened in China is that the internal combustion market has kind of created. I think this has really negatively affected international car makers that were dominating that portion of the market, like Volkswagen. And it's also meant that the Chinese car makers that mostly had joint ventures with international car makers have a glut in supply and to the tune of like 5 million vehicles in a market of, you know, 25 million or something like that. So that's why you're seeing this whole wave of stories about Chinese vehicle exports, there's, there's been a significant increase over the last year to push China from being, you know, and also ran in terms of vehicle exports. A lot of those were actually Teslas. They were made in China. They were being exported before. So now one of the biggest, if not the biggest car exporter, I think they just surpassed Japan in, in a very short span of time. Uh, I think a lot of the news about this has been that China is, you know, a threat on the EV front in Europe um, and other markets. The U.S. is basically close itself off to importing Chinese cars, given the kind of whole trade war that's playing out. But the the more important story that's at least playing out right now is actually one of Chinese low-cost uh, internal combustion engine vehicles that are being exported to Southeast Asia or Latin America and places like that, along with BYDs kind of rise in setting up manufacturing facilities they're looking at uh, Eastern Europe and Latin America, Brazil. Uh, right now, for instance, uh, they're considering Mexico. So I think there is a big shift that's happening both domestically in China, like a very rapid transition towards electric vehicles and, and a very cutthroat competition, a lot of discounting that's happening in this market. And then also this transition is having impacts on the global market because China is now a quite significantly large car market in the world. So what happens there uh, is having ripple effects. Wow, super fascinating and somewhat reminiscent of the China solar panel story from you know, 10, 12 years ago, but in a little bit of a different twist. And, and then also China's coal facility, coal plant exports to other countries as well. Thank you so much, Olaf. This was awesome. No, thank you so much for inviting me. Now, as a very last thing I'll say here about EVs, despite the bad news, this is actually a fascinating and exciting problem to me as an investor, because at least some of it is a software and behavior problem like so much of what we're dealing with in the climate transition. Behavior problems can be addressed with both technology and business model innovation, 
And there are innovators working on this as we speak, like Recurrent and Plug.vin on the vehicle data side, if you want to check either of those companies out. I'm under no illusions that EVs will solve our climate challenges, but the alternative, that is, more high emissions internal combustion SUVs hitting the roads for the first of their many years of life and emissions, that alternative is untenable. So we have to figure out the mobility piece of the climate puzzle. As an impressive mobility entrepreneur I know once said, if you can change people's radius, you can change their lives. Indeed, today, access to socioeconomic opportunities is unlocked by increased mobility, and I don't believe we're going back from that anytime soon. Let's definitely build walkable, bussable places to live, but let's also deploy cars that don't combust us into a three degree Celsius future. As with so much of climate problem solving, we need both and. Thanks again for listening to Climate Money. Thanks for the continued feedback on last week's episode two. We're definitely still in experiment mode. Please subscribe and leave a review if you're a fan and see you next week. Thank you.